You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I am the creative editor at Nori's Carbon Removal Marketplace. Today, we have with us Leah Penniman, farmer, educator, food sovereignty activist, and author of Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farms, Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land. Hey, Leah. Hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'm so happy to have you. We did a book club um, on your book, Farming While Black, last year for our Patreon group, Rebecca who's hosting it here with me, Rebecca Carlson. Thank you, Rebecca, for uh, picking this up and then saying like, we really got to do this show. Like we weren't able to do it last year. Let's see if we can make it happen. So uh, it seems like you really dug this book too, Rebecca. Oh yeah, totally dug it completely. (laughs) And happy to be here and just like honored to be in the conversation with you, Leah. So thanks for joining. I just want to first off start by saying thank you again for writing this book, Leah. It is such an incredible resource for anybody who's interested in farming from like the logistics of how to like bioremediate your soil to like recipes to grow from what you put on your land. So I just am thankful for the generous resource for it and really recommend it to all listeners. But I would just want to start out by saying like, why did you choose to write this book? Because it is quite the undertaking and so thoughtful. So what was the purpose behind it in your mind? Uh, Why write Farming Well Black? Well, the real reason is, as beloved author Toni Morrison said, you know, if there is a book that you need to read that hasn't been written, go and write it. And I've been farming now since 96. And I needed a book like this, you know, when I was a teenager getting into the field and so passionate about organic and regenerative ag, so passionate about feeding the community while taking care of the planet. I needed to know that I wasn't an interloper in someone else's history. You know, I needed to know that the history of my people intersected with the land outside of just the oppression that took place on the land. And so the stories that are in that book around the raised beds of the Obambo people and the OG composting of Cleopatra and the honestly invention of of organic by Dr. George Washington Carver, those were stories that I needed to fortify me to know that as a black person, I was on the right path in reclaiming connection to the land. And most of what was available at the time were requiems for the black farmer or, you know, laments righteous lament, but still laments about the hardship that took place on the land. That was the heart reason. And then the practical reason, of course, is that Soul Fire Farm had been doing many years of on-farm trainings that center the needs of black and brown growers. And the impetus was to take all of our little scraps of curriculum and put them in in one place to, to make our trainings go more smoothly and to make sure that we weren't gatekeeping the knowledge for folks who weren't able to travel out to the farm. Amazing. OG composting from Cleopatra. Here to heard it here first, I guess. <laughs> that is like another, like, as you touched upon, like that thread of bringing the new narrative back to farming and regenerative farming. And my role at Nori is like really focused on regenerative farming. And I think it's so important to highlight things that we aren't highlighting now. And I found a portion, actually, one of your articles in Healthiest. Do you mind if I read it back to you just as like a, as a. Go ahead. I'm curious story. what I wrote. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. So as we're talking about, wonderful history of um, in regenerative ag from the Black agrarian community. Um, you wrote, okay, learning this, I realized that during all those years of seeing images of only white people as the stewards of the land, only white people as organic farmers, only white people in conversations about sustainability, the only consistent story I'd seen or been told about Black people and the land was about slavery and sharecropping, about corrosion and brutality and misery and sorrow. 
Here was an entire history blooming into our present in which black people's expertise and love of the land and one another was evident. When we as black people are bombarded with messages that our only place of belonging on the land is slaves, performing dangerous and backbreaking menial labor, to learn that our true and noble history as farmers and ecological stewards is deeply healing. Fortified by a more accurate picture of my people's belonging in the land, I knew I was ready to create a mission-driven farm centering on the needs of the black community. With that, like that just like is such a beautiful and proactive and like bold movement into farming. And thank you for that. So could you just talk a little bit more into like the detail of, of what that theme, how it drives you in conversations and in, in what you do? Mm, how it drives me. I mean, it's the air I breathe, right? So I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little juxtaposition of an example of how that knowing drives me. So when I was researching for the book, one of the sort of jaw-dropping bits of history that I encountered was the fact that European colonizers within just a single generation of farming the Great Plains had driven 50% of the soil organic matter up into the atmosphere as gaseous carbon, right, in, in just a generation. And with a corresponding decrease in fertility and nutrient holding and water holding and all, all that we know. And you at Nori obviously know really well because you're very focused on soil carbon capture. And yet indigenous peoples across the world have like been knowing how to maintain soil carbon and get ourselves fed at the same time. You know, certainly this study took place in the Great Plains and we know that uh, sustainable ecological collaboration with buffalo got people fed. And going to West Africa, where, you know, my maternal ancestors are from, one of the really poignant sort of counterexamples to this is what the women of Ghana and Liberia do, which is create something called African dark earth, which is this super rich pyrogenic black compost that combines bone char, ash from the cooking fires, you know, scraps from the kitchen, scraps from the fields, you know, combined just so. And it's a, a very high carbon retentive super compost. Now, it'd be enough if they just made this compost because that's super dope, but there's actually a moral obligation in the community that everybody will add to it, so much so that you can determine the age of the community by the depth of the compost. Like the opposite soil ethic, right? The opposite soil ethic, where, where in U.S. capitalism, we have the idea that you just mine everything until you deplete it and then move on, and in our indigenous societies, that you're actually obligated to leave the earth better than you found it. I mean, I feel like the story speaks for itself. You can pull a lot of themes out of it. But the idea that in our traditions, there is a way of honoring the obligation to our descendants and honoring the obligation to our human and non-human siblings through the way that we interact with the environment is, is really powerful. And that informs what we do on the farm and just how we try to move through the world. In your opinion, do you see a lot of this in older European traditions? Was there a period where there were there was a dominant paradigm within the European or Euro-American ways of being that prioritized this regenerative mindset? Did we lose it at some point? Uh, was it ever there? When did white people go from being indigenous and, and lose that? Or does that even make sense as a question? Oh, it absolutely makes sense. And I am no historian of that, so I won't pretend to know. But I can say with certainty that all of us have indigenous roots. All of us once belonged to place and all of us once had cycles of sustainability in place. You know, some scholars talk about the, that being pre-medieval. Some scholars go back even before that. But I think in some ways, white folks 
including my white family members and ancestors, have a greater challenge in front of them because the the generations separating us from indigeneity are more. And so that repair and that reaching is more that needs to happen. You feature this so prominently in your writing of connecting with so many different layers of heritage is one way of perhaps framing it that you have access to that are, are trying to integrate into a coherent self insofar as such a thing is possible. I feel sort of deracinated as a term that people use in this. I don't feel like I have like a strong set of ancestors behind me. I don't feel the weight of my ancestors like maybe maybe you do. You've done a lot of research. I feel very disconnected from that. I want to reclaim some of that indigeneity, but I also don't want to do it in a way where if you saw me at something, you'd be like, you're trying too hard. You've made a wrong <laughs> turn somewhere. I think we all know who we're talking about. Is there some way I can start or how do I, how should I start thinking about this? That's great. I love the trying too hard. Yeah, definitely yes. don't appropriate anyone else's indigeneity. That would be the, the trying too hard. <laughs> but I would say the person who speaks really eloquently on this that I recently listened to was Owen Taylor of True Love Seeds, who is a Italian American, you know, white bodied person who was on a podcast with my dear friend Tegan Angle of the Table Underground and talking about the cost of whiteness and the the history of immigration to the United States and how in exchange for the badge and benefits of white supremacy, immigrant communities, including Italians, Jewish people, and others had to trade in exactly what you're talking about, you know, language, culture, cuisine, belonging, religion, in many cases, just ties to ancestry that would otherwise fortify them and in in exchange got power and privilege. And what does it mean to actually relinquish that privilege and relinquish this concept of whiteness and reclaim ethnicity and identity. And he doesn't outline, you know, a whole roadmap for that, but I think it's a really important framing. And for him, one of the things that he started with was to get to know his grandparents more deeply, get to know and plant the seeds of his people and get to know what that bean, how that bean tastes distinctive from other beans and what happens when you cook with it. And so it's been a slow process of reclaiming intimacy with heritage that's helped my friend Owen in his journey around his ancestry as a white person. So I would check out that episode if you haven't heard it. No, I absolutely will. One of the last books I read about this was, did you read Michael W. Twitty's The Cooking Gene? Oh, love it. So our family is yeah. black and Jewish. And so of course we're, and Michael Twitty's oh. also a friend. So we, <laughs> I love that he talks about the bumping of pestles and grinding of mortar stones at the night in the night as this call to ourselves. I mean, just a brilliant, brilliant author, historian. Yeah, maybe it's my own laziness I'm pointed towards then because he, he spent so much time and his his ancestry is surely much more difficult by orders of magnitude than my own. So I should be easier to engage with some of that. And since he's been so successful at it, what's my excuse? Do I have one? <laughs> it does Probably take not. some effort. I, I should say that. So I have white ancestors on my, on my dad's side and it's so powerfully well documented that it's like, there's no thrill, you know, I mean, there's books and there's stuff in museums and, you know, to uncover the black and indigenous uh, lineages, it has involved traveling to the Smithsonian, sitting down with researchers who are specific job it is to trace through ship records and property records. And, you know, it's been, I had to travel to the continent of West Africa and or continent of Africa and spend time in Ghana interviewing people, you know, it's a lot, it took a lot of effort to uncover these stories. Oh, sounds like fun effort, though. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like... and it's been a lifetime. You know, it was yeah. probably it's work that I started when I was 18 and done bit by bit. You know, literally finding out where a great great grandparent was buried and 
sort of triangulating the stone, which was, you know, my family could only afford like an inset stone. It wasn't a headstone. And then digging in that place to uncover the name. I mean, there's been so many beautiful moments of, yeah, I guess just adding bricks to that arch of meaning. I have like a thousand things to say about like identity through culture and history and how we can get so bland over time what we traded for that. However, I have another, that could be a whole nother episode <laughs> of like, come on back, Leah. So hard pivoting, I guess, away from the ancestry, but actually kind of threaded throughout is like regenerative agriculture and the history that we have there. And we're at an interesting spot where regenerative agriculture seems so like cool. People are talking about it. It's marketable, but really it's not even innovative. It was all these like historical and very traditional practices that we're just bringing back to the land. And so when we're thinking about like the typical story about regenerative ag, when there are a lot of stories about there, what would you say it is right now? And what do you think it's actually missing as we're like thinking back to how really our ancestors did farm the land and till or not till the land? Well, I'm not sure I know the full breadth of the the mythology at present, but I will say that regenerative ag, at least in its modern form, originated out of Tuskegee University um, in Alabama, which is a black agricultural institution that was literally built brick by brick by its farmer students, and specifically Dr. George Washington Carver, who is well known for his work with the peanut and the sweet potato and the thousands of inventions uh, that he he made with peanuts in particular. What is lesser known about Dr. Carver is the reason he was so obsessed with peanuts is that they are legumes and legumes are the BFFs of rhizobial bacteria and are able to make a collaboration with them to pull nitrogen out of the atmosphere and put it into the soil, which is why there's nitrogen in the soil in the first place. It's amazing, amazing collaboration. And he was noticing that the monocropping of the southern soils with cotton or tobacco was depleting them. And we were just a few years away from complete decimation of the Southern economy and got people to start rotating crops, got them to start doing polycultures and cover cropping, leaving fallow, pulling in muck from the wetlands to make mulches and compost, you know, silver pasturing animals between the oak forest and the, the fallow fields. I mean, just all these, all these practices that we talk about today. And these, this was the late 1800s two whole decades before Rodale, who is sometimes credited as the founder of, of organic. And something even lesser known about Dr. Carver that I'm just starting to uncover myself is that he saw this regenerative ag work as a spiritual practice and believed wholeheartedly that God spoke to him through soil critters, through flowers, through trees, and would go out very, very early in the morning to nature to hear what God's message was and these farming practices and his inventions with the peanut, he said, were direct messages from the divine through nature that he heeded. So pretty, pretty powerful. You see Rodell getting a lot of attention, or you see Rudolf Steiner and, and the biodynamic farming getting a lot of attention. And you're like, where's George Washington Carver? That's the centerpiece for you. He's missing something like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess what is maybe missing is sometimes I see regenerative ag branded as some new idea. And similar to permaculture, it's an amalgamation of indigenous ideas that are, are rebranded, repackaged and sold, you know, and that's a tragedy, not just in terms of narrative and credit, but also it perpetuates the legacy of theft upon which this nation is founded. You know, the, the theft was originally and continues to be land and bodies. And it, additionally, now there's a rampant theft of intellectual property without credit, without compensation, without permission. So 
I would love to see our nation, including its progressives, really question, investigate, and denounce this habit of theft that, that we have as a people. And yeah, because regenerative, we don't need to do all that, right? We're better than that, I hope. Yeah, perhaps so. If I'm understanding your perspective here, it's that when we think of regenerative farming, we've located it within a space of whiteness, primarily. And you're trying to decenter that whiteness and sort of recenter people of color inside of this tradition, which is a link to a question I've had for a long time. I've been dying to ask you, actually, if you could shed some light on this history. When I think of enslaved persons in the United States, and even before the United States, actually, I think of it primarily about rural agrarian economies, cash crops, that sort of like extractive mining of the soil. And then nowadays, one of the more euphemistic terms for for people of color, African-Americans is urban. So how did it go from being a people that I associate primarily with rural labor to being urban? When and how did that switch? Yeah, so that demographic switch was mostly early to mid-1900s with a demographic trend called the Great Migration, when 6 million Black people moved from South to North. And if you learned about it at all in school, it was the largest internal migration in this country's history. I mean, 6 million is a lot of people to get up and move. It's taught sometimes as a, a search for opportunities in the factories of the urban North. You know, World War One, World War Two needed people to build machines and so on and so forth. The sort of deeper truth of that that's not often told is that it was a refugee crisis. And I'll explain why. So at the end of the Civil War, 1865, the South was in a freak out. Like, it was running on free labor. Now the labor is freed. What are they going to do? And so they tried a lot of tricky tactics to keep people in forms of neo-bondage. You know, sharecropping is one well-known. Um, another lesser known is convict leasing, which is the habit of making these kind of ridiculous rules like no loitering, which means no standing around or no vagrancy, which means not having no, no being unemployed and then locking black people up for that. And then renting them back to the plantation as a uh, convict. That book, Slavery by another name. Is that, have you talked okay. about that? Okay. That didn't mean interrupt, but it, if you haven't read that book, it's troubling to say the least. Yeah. So, you know, it went on, you know, the guest worker programs are arguably an extension. All that to say, even despite these efforts, you know, black folks kept trying to, get land. I mean, 40 acres and a mule was a promise, but it was not fulfilled. In fact, reparations was given to the quote slave owners for losing their quote property. But black people did manage to purchase 16 million acres of land by 1910, which was astounding. It was 14% of the nation's farms. These were mostly small marginal land holdings, but it still was their own land. And again, the South is freaking out because they see the writing on the wall. Okay, so if black people own their own land and their own businesses, we're not going to have the labor that we need and our social structure will be upended. This is white Southerners speaking. And so they started to burn down financially successful black areas, Tulsa, Black Wall Street. They started to lynch and destroy lives and homes of land owning black farmers. There's over 4,000 documented cases of these murders, including, you know, David Walker in Hinkman, Kentucky in 1908. He, he and his wife and five kids were murdered. And the white neighbor took over the deed and still has it to this day, their descendants. So people got out of there. I mean, wouldn't you, right? People fled. So it was people fleeing from this terror campaign of the Klan, the White Caps, uh, the White Citizens Council, and other terrorist groups who were state-supported and went to go north and west to urban areas. So yes, the Black population is now more urban than rural, but it doesn't mean that black farmers have disappeared from rural space or that rural sentiments have disappeared. We're people that 
can move in, in both spaces. And there is, you know, what I think will become a demographic trend right now of returning to the South and returning to the land. So we'll kind of see, we'll see how that all plays out. But it's, it's fascinating, this back South movement that that's just starting to catch steam. In hindsight, 40 acres and a mule seems like such a bargain to avoid centuries of racial strife and having an underclass that is seemingly permanent. I feel like we would probably, everyone, with the exception of a few, we probably all would have been healthier, safer, happier, all good adjectives. We probably would have been all of those things now had we dealt with it. It just seems incredibly wasteful and sad. I, I have a hard time understanding how the logic of it uh, I guess well, if you think because your logic is... assumes that black people are human beings and worthy of mm-hmm. freedom, belonging, dignity and life. And the assumption, sadly, at the time, predominantly and still to this day with approximately half of white Americans is that black people are actually less than human and need to be controlled and in roles of servitude. Otherwise, we're too scary. So I agree with your heart. <laughs> but but the goal was not actually to have Black folks have economic freedom and independence. The goal was to try to continue to push Black people into roles of economic servitude, which was largely successful by the former plantation owners of that time. We got to we got to really question the whole <laughs> the whole premise of the system, and, and you know it's why the movement for Black Lives uses the hashtag Black Lives Matter because it really is about how do we value life? Whose life do we value? Reading your book, yes, practical, but also so convicting and hard to read, especially your chapter of the healing from trauma. And it's like, can you imagine the trajectory had the 40 acres and the mule been fulfilled? If that promise had been fulfilled, like what would the, our landscape look like? What would these conversations be? It would just would be so foundationally different um, mm-hmm. than what we're at now. Absolutely. And one exciting thing, I mean, I don't know if you all been following in the news, but the Justice for Black Farmers Act introduced by Senators Booker Warren and Gillibrand attempts to correct that through a major land reform proposal that would actually give back the millions of acres of land through, you know, purchasing land off the market and making it available to trained farmers from the black community. And I think their strategy is it probably won't get passed as a complete piece of legislation, but they're taking pieces of it and stuffing it into other bills. So the debt relief portion, actually just the debt relief for Black farmers who still have debt left over that wasn't addressed during the major Pigford lawsuit was put into a COVID relief bill and actually passed like astounding, you know, millions and millions of dollars of debt just being forgiven for these farmers who were oppressed by the USDA, US Department of Agriculture. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to see land reform still. Yes. (laughs) And Amen to that. Can I say that? I don't know. <laughs> um, sure. I do. So in this, like, it's hard to read and convicting portion of this, you have a portion that's talking about as we're looking at new, like agricultural landscapes and this like idea of viewing ag as like the wild west and what that, that point of view of the wild west is like, we settled it and like exploited things. And it was convicting because in Nori, we're in the carbon marketplace. I'm always like, this is the wild west. What are, what's, there's so much to figure out. There's so much to think about. There are no rules. And like, as we are entering into a potential new portion of farming of carbon farming to help incentivize and restore like regenerative agriculture, what are, some things that you think we should start, we should keep in mind as we're integrating ideas of those who've gone before us. So we're not redoing bad stories, replaying narratives, if we're going to be successful in this. 
Oh, wow. Well, I, I did read your website, so I know what you do, but I'm not sure I know enough about your practices or carbon markets to give you any um, solvent advice. But yeah, I, I definitely empathize with wanting to interrogate the whole concept of the Wild West, because of course, the West was not wild. It was inhabited by civilized and highly evolved societies of human beings who knew those ecosystems well and managed those ecosystems thoughtfully. And, you know, so I think it is important to interrogate even our metaphors for how do we talk about newness and how do we talk about spaces of creativity and possibility and openness outside of a colonizer framework, right? Because it's not something to be conquered. Yeah, I'm not aware of, which doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I'm not aware of any indigenous examples of commodifying ecological services. And I get it. <laughs> Why we right. would do that. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> because what you all are doing is you're translating between capitalism and the earth, right? Needs of the earth. And I wish there you well. <laughs> <laughs> there are versions of that too that I find equally, well, I don't know about equally, but I definitely find them icky when I see them. I'm like, you're, you're clearly viewing this instrumentally or in a way that I find inappropriate. And we read plenty of Robin Wall Kimmer or Wendell Berry or Mary Oliver, anyone who encourages you to stick your hand in the dirt and just sit with that. Whereas trying to translate that into a commodity market, like this is a category error. <laughs> <You shouldn't. laughs> Does not compute, right? But you also no. need some of that for scale. And like we want to help agribusiness and, and farmers overall move that direction. So are those changes on the margin important or is it better to get people to do something more akin to what you're doing of trying to get them reconnected in a place-based sensibility. Um, oh, or I don't think it's either or at all. I, th I think both are really important. And, and so I'll, I'll give you a little metaphor for that. So we often talk about social and environmental justice as being represented by a butterfly with four winglets. And we all know a butterfly mm -hmm. will not fly with one, two, or three. It needs all four. So on one of those wings is resist, which is the standing up to oppression and confronting it really directly through protest, boycott, walkout, strikes, right? Another wing is build. Those are folks like us who create alternative institutions that we hope embody the values we wish to see in the world. So the people building freedom schools and credit unions and co-ops and farms. There's reform, the third wing, which is a little bit your, your domain. It's how do you work within the existing system to make incremental change? So that's our radical school teachers, our elected officials, folks who get jobs in prosecutors' offices and try to lighten sentences. And then the fourth wing is the healers, um, the, the therapists, the artists, the visionaries, the singers, the, the people who, who help us be whole. We need all of that. And if, if for nothing else, you know, if you have the, the radical resistors over there in the streets, they scare the uh, middle of the road people into signing up for a program like yours because that feels like less terrifying. And <laughs> so I feel like it all is going to point us in the right direction. But um, we have to recognize that the ultimate end game, at least for me, is not to make a gentler capitalism. It's really to rethink our whole social and economic structure in a way that does adhere to the laws of, of the blessed earth. Are you satisfied with that, Rebecca? It's a tall order. I know, a lot yeah. There, but it's pretty, <laughs> yes. pretty sensible to me. I think, it, I mean, it's it's absolutely such a beautiful metaphor for it. And it's it's just so hard to balance it all. Trying to move things forward and talk to all people who are part of the conversation keeps me up at night. But I think the way you framed it and like having each of those four wings as a part of how you move something forward is the only way to do it, I guess. 
Leah, I have a couple more questions that actually come from some of our listeners from our Patreon. Would you indulge them with some personalized responses here? I will. I'll give it a try. All right. Here's this first one. It says, I wonder if the land itself is feeling a form of trauma these days from being so abused. I'm so concerned about the apparent soil degradation that I see everywhere. Leah talks about soil fertility. How can we help with that even in small spaces like our own yards? Yeah, well, I do believe that that the earth is not just an environment or a commodity or a bundle of natural resources, but is a sentient conscious being, actually a deity, you know, and and does feel the pain that we inflict and does mourn for the callousness of her children against her. So I'm I'm with your listener on that. As far as how we can help with healing the soil in our own small yards. You know, I do write about in the book Farming While Black, how there was lead in the soils in my small urban yard and community gardens at one point. And we did the slow painstaking work of remediating that lead using hyper accumulating plants of scented geranium and sunflower and mustard. And so if there is damaged soil around you, however small, I think it's worth giving it a try to clean it up. And in absence of that, because some of us really don't have access to soil, we can think about how our societal actions impact the soils that we do use because our footprint extends beyond the soils we touch. The food we eat, the type of transportation we use, how much energy we consume all impact soil. And so making those ecological choices, advocating for policies that protect soil also, even though they're a few steps removed, you know, help us do our part to protect the earth. It's lovely. I'm sure they'll be very happy with that response. We have one other from a farmer as well, actually. She wanted to connect with you on this level. She says, I particularly love harvesting potatoes, garlic, and eggplant. The first two, because it feels like digging for gold every time. Their bounty is hidden and such a great surprise. An eggplant just because a big, beautiful eggplant seems so exotic and hard to grow here up in uh, Atlantic Canada. So she's wondering which crops bring you the most joy to grow? Oh, I love those. So when when uh, your listener is talking about hidden treasure, my daughter, Nishima, who's grown up on the farm, who's now 18, always would be like, Mom, tell me when it's time to harvest the carrots or the beets or the turnips or whatever, because she she wanted to be the one to pull that magic out of the earth. So yeah, but I will say the ones that bring me the most joy, hands down strawberries. So many things about strawberries. One, they come ripe in my birthday month, which is June. Two, it's the first crop I ever garden, starting at age five with my grandmother in her backyard outside of Boston. We made jam out of berries and apples. And three, just because it's a freaking miracle. I mean, it's this plant that just keeps regenerating itself, gives forth these luscious, like sweet, delectable red fruits all over the ground. And they're just abundant and wonderful. So yeah, there's nothing like strawberries. (laughs) Except for they take over things, that's for sure, but (laughs) keep them in in line. Anytime I plant something and it germinates, if it's a small thing in my garden, if it's like a field that I was walking back in Nebraska, when when plants emerge, it is the most beautiful thing. And it's like always a miracle. Like, how does that little thing... I doubt it every spring. Like, we just filled our greenhouse with the first, you know, last week was our first big planting for the spring. And I don't believe it every year. I'm like, Same. nothing's going to grow. There's no way. And then it does. It's amazing. <laughs> no way. It's it's going to die. No. Oh my gosh, it's coming out. And it's like, and it becomes this huge plant that gives nourishment and provides oats. Mm-hmm. It's a new joy every spring or whenever planting emerges. 
I also, I, I forget to see the magic and I, I love being reminded of it. And that's what those authors I mentioned earlier with Robin Wall Kimmer and others. I'm just like, oh yes, the world is miraculous. And I have forgotten to, how to see it. Thank you for reminding me. So thanks for the nudge. Well, Leah, we should take us out of here. Where should people learn more about your work? How can they get involved? Where might you steer them? So we'd love to have folks get involved with Soulfire Farm. You can find a lot of information on our website, www.soulfirefarm.org. And on all the socials, Soulfire Farm, all one word, all lowercase. And we'll see you hopefully at an, one of our events or advocating for more humane and sustainable policies. But we're excited to collaborate with you. I heard that you're working on a new book. Is that true? It is true. So my next book is Black Earth Wisdom, published by HarperCollins, and it will bring together the voices of 30 respected Black environmentalists who are letting us know what the earth is instructing us to do in these times. Wow. When might we expect that to uh, be available? Probably Earth Day 2022. That's what we're shooting for. Nice. Yeah, the lead on, on book times is always... Uh... Yeah, it's not written yet. I'm doing interviews right now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, um, thank you so much for being here. And thank you, Rebecca, too, for co-hosting. Absolutely. Yes. Thanks, Leah, for the wonderful insights and the sharing of knowledge. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Take care, you both. Take care, too. Bye for now. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.